have a Bible handy, why don't you turn to the book of James for me? Turn to the book of James. If you are uh, new to church, why don't you, or new to Christianity, you're not usually in a church building on a Sunday morning, why don't you grab one of the red Bibles round about you and turn to page 1213. 1213. Uh, you'll be helped there. We're going to look at James chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. The chapter number is the big number, the verse numbers are the little numbers tucked in there. We're in between series, so preaching on just this passage today. And as you make your way there, let's pray. Our Father, you've told us uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ prayed for his followers, uh, not just his disciples back then, but for all believers throughout all time, that they would be sanctified by the truth. And he declared in that prayer, your word is truth. Set us apart for you. Help us to live for you. Even now, by your spirit, teach us and change us. For his sake and for your glory, we ask it. Amen. Well, we live in an angry world, don't we? Uh, just in this past week, I've, I've, I've tried to just recognize anger when I see it, whether in me or in someone else or in things I read or in things I see. And just in the past week, I've even I've seen videos of angry drivers knocking cyclists off their bikes because the bikes are going too slow. I've seen people in supermarket queues sigh forcefully through their mouth with a just because that queue is moving quicker than this queue. I've seen children throw what might be affectionately called a hissy fit. Otherwise known as a, a blind rage tantrum. Uh, anywhere, doesn't really matter. Um, I've read on a serious note that a teena- the teenager accused of stabbing the schoolboy Bailey Gwynn to death in Aberdeen told police it was just, he did it in a moment of anger that was caused by disagreement over a biscuit. We live in an angry world. And I want to argue that no one really knows how to deal with it. In our world, anger is, on the one hand, frowned upon, but still viewed as something that must be vented. And so I read a piece of research this week that said that actually what we all need to do is we need to swear more. Swearing is necessary in that it relieves stress. They were saying that the way in which you swear and even the syllables and the pronunciation of swear words is a, is a stress reliever. What a lot of nonsense. One man in Nanjing, China, thinks that he has found a solution to this. He's opened what's called the Rising Sun Anger Release Bar. Customers can ask waiters to dress up as the person that they are most angry at so they can actually beat them up. Now, the owner said, people are stressed, there's no place to vent your anger. The idea of having someone dress up as your boss so that you can beat them up is attractive to customers. Some of you are thinking that you might make a trip to Nanjing. Now, in a world then that struggles with anger and struggles to cope with it and really doesn't know how to deal with it, We, as Christians, have a great opportunity and a responsibility to show everyone that there is a better way. For God's word says, even in regard to swearing, do not let any unwholesome talk 
come out of your mouth, but only that which is useful for building one another up. And we read passages like James chapter 1, verses 19 to 21, to see what God's word has to say in this situation. Let's read from verse 19. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Amen. This is God's word. Well, James is writing to Christians. He's writing to them and, and, and he's trying to teach them, look, this is what a Christian does. This is how a Christian speaks. This is how a Christian listens. This is how a Christian loves. He's proverbial in the way he writes. And he has such great wisdom and spoken with real conciseness. It's great to see. And here we find him address the situation of anger. And I want to just speak to it in two, uh, with two points today. Uh, anger's intrusion, point one, and anger's exclusion, point two. Anger's intrusion, first of all. The first thing I want us to notice from this text is, in verse 20, as you look down with me, that God desires a righteous life. Man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires, writes James. So, if we believe in Jesus, we can safely say that as Christians, God has saved us from an unrighteous life. As 1 Peter 3.18 says, um, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the, here's what we are, unrighteous to bring you to God. And praise God for that. But he's not, he saved us then to live a righteous life. 1 John 2 verse 29 says, If you know that he, Jesus, is righteous, know, you know that everyone who has been born of him does what is right. And there John picks up for us this common thread throughout the scripture that God wants us to be holy as he is holy. He wants us to walk not in the way in which we used to walk, but in this new way, in the imitation of Christ and his righteousness. The good news is that God doesn't leave us on our own to do that. He helps us live out this righteous life. He gives us his Holy Spirit to live in us, who works on us like a sculptor uh, with his chisel, shaping us into the likeness of Jesus bit by bit. As 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, we are being changed into his, Jesus' likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And of course, our conversion. Even as we look, point to that, look back to that point when we first believed, it shows us that our repentance and faith shows us that we want a righteous life. So you became a Christian because you saw your sin for what it was, this impudent refusal to bow to Almighty God, the light, you saw the life-wrecking rejection of his holy words, the hell-deserving construction of your own little kingdom. And you became a Christian because you recognized your sin for what it was and recognized the Savior for who he is. You met Jesus Christ. 
you came to know his love. And that changed everything. And from then on, you sought his kingdom and his righteousness, knowing that God requires a righteous life. There's no escaping it. Now, let me say this. Anger does not bring about, or if you like, produce the righteous life that God requires. In fact, anger's intrusion prevents it. Now, a point of clarity here. There are two kinds of anger that are spoken about in the Bible. There is such a thing as righteous anger. A kind of anger that is not sinful, that is wholly expected and definitively good. The Bible tells us that God gets angry. But God, being sinless as he is, is not sinful in his anger. Psalm 103 verse 8 says, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. Now, I find that an amazing verse that is worthy of you pausing over it. What it tells us here is that God gets angry, but his anger is good. God gets angry, but he's not quick-tempered. And even God's slowness to anger, his patience, in other words, towards a world that deserves his white-hot wrath, is actually, as a characteristic, as glorious as his grace, his compassion, and his love. You ever thought about that? Now, God's anger, of course, is always exercised rightly and produces the right outcome. But, and we too can know what a righteous anger is. Uh, we too can know what anger is and feel it as Christians and not sin. So in Ephesians 4.26, we read the Apostle Paul write, In your anger, do not sin. Which tells us that when our anger is stirred by righteousness, anger might just be the right response. But how do we know if it's the right kind of anger we're experiencing? Well, I suppose you could say that your anger would be righteous anger when you're angry at what makes God angry. And you should fully expect to be moved by the kind of things that we see in this world, like injustice, or moved when people take something that God has called evil and they call it good. That's grievous. Or moved when we are sinned against, we hear of abuse, all sorts of things. There are plenty of times when we do get that right, but then we go to the fridge. And there's not even enough milk for your cornflakes. And then you realize that you're not typically angry at the violation of God's law. You're typically angry at the violation of your law. You're not typically angry at the things that might mar God's kingdom You're typically angry at the things that frustrate your little kingdom. So typically, man's anger is not justified and will not bring about righteousness for all concerned. That's what James is trying trying to help us see. So parents, why do you yell at your children when they take too long to put their shoes on? 
because in your kingdom, your children ought to practice a level of obedience that makes your life easy. But what righteous fruit will your anger produce in them when you tell them to hurry up, know the other foot? Or husbands, why does your inner hulk emerge on a Sunday morning while you're sitting outside in the car waiting for your wife to be ready? Why do you hoot your horn and look at the clock and curse it like that's going to do anything? Because in your kingdom, your wife would be ready on time all the time. And if she really loved you, she'd save you the embarrassment of being late. But what righteous fruit will your anger produce in her if you say, hurry up, this always happens. Or wives, why are you so irritable when your husband comes home from the shop with only three of the five things you needed and two more things you did not need? Because in your kingdom, your husband would write a list like any other sensible person would. But what righteous fruit will your frustration produce in the whole situation? Drivers, why do you get angry when there's a red light? Or traffic. Generally, driving cars is like, it's quite common for a lot of people. And therefore, in a city, traffic is common. Why do we get angry in traffic? Well, because in our little kingdom, we'd like everyone to treat us like an emergency vehicle, pull over and bless us as we pass. It's true. But what righteous fruit does your anger produce when you're hammering the steering wheel and you're thinking, I've got to be somewhere in five minutes? And your frustration you're really frustrated over something that probably amounts to about 25 seconds. Church members, why are you ice cold towards someone who offended you a million years ago? Because in our kingdom, that person ought to be made to pay for the transgression every day of their lives. That's what we think at times. But what, what benefit, what Fruit, righteousness, will that anger produce in God's family? None. So the vast majority then of our anger is thoroughly unrighteous and does not bring about the righteous life that God requires. And it's pretty plain to see, isn't it? I mean, the expression of our anger even proves its unrighteousness. Think about the kind of things that you see or you hear when a person becomes angry. Think about a child. Think about a child when they're thrown a tantrum, when he or she becomes angry. Something so cute can all of a sudden turn into something of a monster. And sad, you know, we've all seen children who are not happy about something just kind of tense up. You know, veins start to pulsate where you didn't even know there were veins. And they can just screech with the kind of rage that actually makes it, it feels like your brain actually shakes. And then they can just throw themselves to the floor in a tantrum. All because they're not getting their own way in their own little kingdom. Now, sadly, many of us don't really grow out of that. I mean, how many times in the past week has your forehead frowned in frustration? Or your breathing is deepened. 
your mouth was sighing, you realized your jaw was actually a bit sore because you were just that little bit too tense. How many times have we raised our voice to an unacceptable level or used words that cut deep, saying things we didn't even mean just because we were either trying to divert the attention away from something that we had done or just because in our anger we just spew out curses and try to injure people with our words. The expression of our anger proves its unrighteousness. You don't even need to have slammed a door. You just need to be icy cold in your treatment of someone to express your anger towards them. Man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God requires. The funny thing about it is we think it does. We think, it does. We think it's going to produce something good. We think... That when we become angry, it's going to do a good thing. It's going to resolve the situation. That's part of the appeal of anger, actually. Because it feels like when you're angry, when you're expressing that anger, it feels like you're taking control of the situation. But when you're angry, you've already lost control. It feels like you're making yourself heard, but when you're angry, no one's listening. They're just getting ready to be angry in reply. It feels powerful, but when you're angry, you only prove your weakness. It's not strength. You might use anger to bring about change, but anger either leaves you stuck where you are or makes matters worse. No, anger, brothers and sisters, is a barefaced lie. And God hates it. And Jesus himself said that sinful anger is so problematic in Matthew 5. He said, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. It produces nothing good. It is by no means a respectable sin. So what ought we to do about it? Well, James tells us to do two things. That was anger's intrusion. This is anger's expulsion. He tells us to do something, two things really, that typify The way that gospel people, people who trust in Jesus as their righteousness, deal with any sin in the Christian life. These two things typify the way that gospel people who know fine and well that they've been forgiven of their sin and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit who's chiseling away at them. That they can live this way in the Christian life. They do two things. We, We get rid of something and we accept another thing in its place. That's really what sanctification is. To be sanctified or made holy literally means to be set apart from something that's sinful. To be made holy away from that thing and its activities and to be consecrated or set apart towards another thing, a new way of living that pleases God. And those two things are called by theologians mortification and vivification. Mortification is the, of putting something to death, of saying no to things that you really want to kill or get rid of. If you're using an, a gardening analogy, that would be kind of pulling up weeds. Vivification is what happens when you say yes to the things, the godly things, the virtuous things that you really want to adopt in life. You want to see As typical in your life, the gardening analogy, that's the planting of flowers and trees and pretty things. And this is what James is telling us to do here. 
in relation to sinful anger. Look with me. Get rid of all moral filth, as it says in verse 21. And the evil that is so prevalent. James says anger and actually every other sinful deed or desire here is called out for what it is. It's moral filth. It is evil. It's anti-good. And James says it's so prevalent in the sense that it's in everyone all the time. And James underlines the unacceptability of it and says, let's get rid of it. Let's get rid of it. And how do we do that? Well, it's not just saying, I'm going to kill this thing. I want to put this, mortify this thing, put it to death. What is he telling us to accept? What are we consecrated to? What are the bulbs and the, the flowers that we want to plant? Well, he says, accept, humbly accept the word that is planted in you. Now, when James is talking about the word here, he's talking about the gospel. The message of the gospel. That by believing the message of the gospel, we have, as Christians, entered into newness of life. Jesus died to take away this anger that we experience. Therefore, we don't need to live in it any longer. But when sinful anger rumbles within, what we actually do is that we reject that truth concerning the gospel and accept the lie that anger's an okay thing to be and our anger is justified. It's acceptable in the situation. And, and actually, on my reasoning, it is the best possible response to this situation. But that's pride. When you ignore the flawless truth of God's word. The wisdom that he has declared and say, no, I think I've found a slightly better way to do this. That's pride. But James calls for humility. Ignore your inner lawyer is what Paul Tripp says. In humility, recognize that God sees more of the situation than you do and has a far better plan for cooling the situation down than you do. So the best way, according to James, to apply the gospel in this area of sinful anger is to take God at his word. It's just another name for faith. Just another name for belief. And that's what it means to accept the word that's planted in you this is a word, this is, this is a truth, this is a gospel that's already in you because you've already been converted, you've already been given birth through this living and abiding word already. James is addressing Christians here, of course. Now this is why it's important to meditate on the gospel, to share in communion, to remember the full effects of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ and the forgiveness and grace that's ours to enjoy. Sometimes we cripple ourselves with guilt and shame when in fact God has given us the opportunity daily to humbly repent under his welcoming grace. As James will say later, he, as he calls him, you adulterous people, you wicked generation, and then he'll go on to say in James 4, verse 6, I think it is, but he gives more grace. He still tells you to grieve, mourn, and wail over your sin. That's not the right way to live, but he gives us grace to live. 
And the way we take him at his word, the way we accept that grace is to meditate more on the word of truth. The word that presents the gospel to us in great clarity. And this is why reading God's words and growing in the knowledge of God is so important. And doing it regularly. Regularly? Where did that come from? Regularly. I put my emphasis in the wrong place. What I want you to see is that when we come to reading God's word on a day-by-day basis, the more you sweat in training in this, the less you bleed in battle. The more we sweat to make the effort in remembering God's words, by his grace, the better equipped we might be when it comes to the heat of the moment. We need this word of truth. The truth that gives us every reminder of the gospel and the righteous life that God desires. We need this, this sword of the spirit to kill sin. Now most often, this is the thing that severs the root of temptation. That exposes the root of deceit and promises something better when you respond in a righteous way. That's why we need to call verses to mind. So even as we think about anger. I've memorized verses 19 to 20 to help me tackle anger. I can become so irritable and frustrated and cross at such utterly ridiculous things. A friend of mine asked me just the other day, he said, "Uh, what's your temper tiger? And I said, what? He said, what are the things that bring out your temper tiger? And then he actually went, err. I said, that's ridiculous. He said, no, the thing that's ridiculous is you getting angry at those things. I was like, fair play. It's true. Most often, the thing that severs the root of temptation as we think about anger is is bringing to mind these verses that help to fight that temper tiger in that moment. So when you feel even your inner volcano rumbling, the sword swing that severs the root of anger, not enough times in me, but at times it does, is man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God requires. And I recall in those moments, in the heat of those moments, even the righteousness of God, I recall it, how holiness and perfect and pure he is. His love, his grace, his compassion, his slowness to anger. And I want it. I want it. And I recall the pleasures that I've tasted of God, of seeing God more clearly from an undefiled conscience. And a gentle and quiet heart. And I recall the carnage of anger's eruption. The tears that it causes in my children and in family life and the disruption that I've seen it cause in lots of people's lives, I recall that carnage and I recognize that God's right. Funny that. It doesn't produce anything good. And when I take God at his words, by his grace, he takes anger down. And all of a sudden, there can be a calmness and a gentleness and the frown relaxes, the jaw loosens, the heart stops racing. I no longer feel a desire to bring up old hurts. I want to bring healing words. I don't want to yell or say hurtful things. I want to say sorry and I want to talk to God. That's the righteous life. 
That's how a Christian ought to respond in the face of anger. And we, therefore, all need a small arsenal of even general promises. doesn't need to have to be this one. General promises to use whenever anger or any other sin threatens to lead us astray. And be constantly adding to our arsenal of promises every morning looking for a new one that you can just take with you through the day. The word that brings life. That's how accepting the word that's planted in you can save you. Now, James is not talking about salvation in the sense of redemption in this point. He's addressing people who are already Christians. No, the salvation he's talking about here is a daily rescue from sin and temptation when it comes. So let the God, the Holy Spirit, work through that word to create in you the righteous life that God desires. To create the kind of things that we see in verse 19, being quick to listen. Someone once said that God gave you two ears and one mouth, you should use them in similar proportion. It's better to open your ears than to open your mouth. Be slow to speak. Ecclesiastes 5 says, don't be quick with your mouth or hasty with your heart to utter anything, even before God's. God is in heaven, you're on earth, so let your words be few. And be slow to anger, like God. Composed, not rash. Pure and not sinful. Don't you want this? This is the righteous life that God desires in us. Do we desire it? Or do we too easily entertain sin? Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you should know that God is angry at your anger. And God is angry at every other sin for that matter, if it remains unconfessed. And, and God's anger is described in no uncertain terms in, throughout the Bible. It's always just. It's always right. With his perfect wisdom, it's always pure. It always brings about the right purchase, uh, the, right, uh, the right outcome. To the point that if you knew all that God knew, you would say, actually, I agree with you. Your judgment and your anger is justified. Well, God's anger is described in one place in the Bible, in Isaiah, as being in a cup. It's called a cup of wrath, of his just anger against sin. And it's called a cup that makes men stagger and causes them to stumble. In other words, it's, his wrath is strong, like strong drink. It, it, it leaves you struggling. Now what we see in the gospel is the Lord Jesus Christ take that cup of God's wrath. The cup that seemed as if all hell was distilled into it. And as he prayed in Gethsemane, Father, if at all it is possible, take this cup from me. So he recognized what it meant to go to the cross where he would feel, absorb the full extent of God's wrath towards sin for all who'd believe and it's no wonder that the sinless one shrunk back in that respect yet he said not what I will but your will be done and in saying that and in striding forward to the cross in the opening of his arms in the cross and allowing the soldiers to nail him down and hang him up 
he took that cup of God's wrath. And in your place and on your behalf, he drank damnation dry. He drank that cup of wrath so that you would not have to drink it on that day of judgment that comes. He drank that cup of wrath. And if you believe in him, he puts in your hand a cup of salvation. A cup of joy. And if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ and believed in him for your forgiveness of sin, his wrath is still upon you. You need to turn from your sin and trust in Christ, believing this, that God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for you so that you might become the righteousness of God, pure, forgiven, full of grace, ready to live for him until the very day when you see him face to face and know him in his fullness. Take hold of that offer while it stands. Let's bow our heads together.